Hi, Gary Zacharias with The Apologist Bookshelf. If I can lift it, I'm going to <laughs> discuss a book here that I have not talked about before. It's called When Critics Ask, a popular handbook on Bible difficulties by Geisler and Howe. Here's what Josh McDowell says. Geisler has done it again, teaming up with Thomas Howe. They've given us one of the most comprehensive volumes in defending the faith. It is a must. Uh, D. James Kennedy talks about user-friendly and how much uh, how good it is. Tim LaHaye compliments it. J.P. Moreland, uh, Criswell, Bruce uh, Wilkinson, and on and on and on. So this is a, a really neat book. It is really, I would say, five books in one. It's critical commentary on the whole Bible. It's an apologetics text. It references different Bible difficulties. It actually deals with doctrine, so it's a theology manual. And it's a handbook on verses that get misused by a whole lot of people. So it's a good book, good way to defend the faith. So I'm going to go in the middle of this thing. What they do is uh, give you book by book in the Bible, uh, different, different questions that people have raised with their understanding of what it's like, what it really is saying. So I'm going to start on 328 of the book. By the way, I say lift this book. Gosh, how many pages are we talking about? It's uh, over 600 pages. So it's a hefty book here. All right, what about this one? These are a bunch of questions that people might ask. Um, in Matthew 4, 5 through 10, they said compare that with Luke 4, verses 5 to 12. Is there a mistake in recording the wilderness temptation of Christ by Matthew or Luke? Because... They both say the first temptation when Jesus is out in the desert, the first temptation was to turn stones into bread. But Matthew says the second one was at the pinnacle of the temple. And Luke lists them in the reverse order. It's the kingdoms of the world are second, the pinnacle of the temple is third. So what's the correct order? Who got it wrong? Well, they said it may be that Matthew is describing these temptations chronologically with Luke listing them climactically, that is topically, because he's trying to express the climax that he wants to, to give here. So they said, if you look at the Greek, Matthew 4, 5 begins with the word then, and verse 8 begins with the word again. And they said in Greek, that suggests a sequential order. In Luke, if you look at his account, it just begins with a simple and and that doesn't necessarily indicate a sequential order of events. And there's no disagreement that those temptations happen. They're just changed around. And I think we have to realize, too, they don't mention this, but ancient biography was far different than what we get today. The idea today is that it's got to be perfect as far as what happened and when and the order that happened. Back then, they could move things around. It was considered perfectly okay. So, yeah, I don't see that as a problem at all. Let me go to the next one that I want to talk about here. Matthew 5, 43. So I'm going to go through several Matthew passages here. Matthew 5, 43. Why did the Old, Te Old Testament prescribe that one could hate his enemies? So what's the problem? Jesus says here of the Old Testament, you've heard that it was said you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So the question is, wait a minute, how could a God of love command people to hate their enemies? But the solution is, God never commanded his people to hate their enemies. God's an unchanging God of love. He can't hate any person. So why would Jesus say that the Old Testament taught we should hate our enemies? He didn't. 
Nowhere in the Old Testament can any verse like that be found. Jesus is not quoting the Old Testament. He's showing how the Pharisees misinterpreted the Old Testament. How do we know? Well, Jesus doesn't say, it is written. That's what he often said when he was quoting the Old Testament. Look at Matthew 4, 4, uh, 4, 7, 4, 10. Instead, he says, you have heard, by which he meant the Jewish tradition that had grown up around the Old Testament. So the, the truth is that the God of love commands love both in the Old and the New Testament and never said we're supposed to hate other people. I think that was a nice answer. Here's another one, still in Matthew, Matthew 8, verses 5 to 13. Is there a mistake in the accounts concerning Jesus and the centurion? If you look in Luke 7, 2 to 10, what's the problem? Well, Matthew seems to say that the centurion is there and he's seeking the help of Jesus. But Luke seems to say that the centurion sent elders to see Jesus. Matthew appears to say the centurion himself is talking. But in Luke, it says only the centurion's representative saw Jesus. So which is it? Did the centurion stand there or just his uh, assistants and all his uh, representatives? Well, solution, they're both correct. In the first century, it was understood that when a representative was sent to speak for the master, it was like the master was speaking himself. So they said, you see that today. Uh, when the Secretary of State, for example, goes to meet individuals from other countries, he's really going out in the name of the president. So basically what he says, the president says. So Matthew states a centurion came when probably the truth is centurion sent others. So when Matthew says there was a centurion, that was true, even though it was through his official representative. Okay, here's another one. Matthew eight twenty. Compare that to Matthew 20. In Matthew 24, if Jesus was the Son of God, why would he call himself the Son of Man? So it says most often, the problem is, most often Jesus called himself the Son of Man. That seems to point more to humanity than to deity. If he was really the Messiah, why would he say the Son of Man? But said, you know, as their solution, they said, even if it does refer to his humanity, it's not a denial of his deity. By becoming man, he didn't cease being God. It wasn't a subtraction of deity when he came into this world. It was just an addition of humanity. He does claim to be God on many occasions. Here are a couple of places. Matthew 16, verses 16 and 17. John 8, 58. John 10, 30. So Jesus was divine, but he was also human. Two natures conjoined into one person. But more than that, he's not denying his deity when he calls himself the Son of Man. It's actually part of his deity as well. Only God can forgive sins. That's in Isaiah 43 and Mark 2. But as the Son of Man, Jesus had the power to forgive sins. That was in Mark 2. Christ will return as the Son of Man. He's citing Daniel 7.13, where the Messiah is described as the Ancient of Days. That's deity. When Jesus was asked by the high priest if he was the Son of God, he said yes. And he said he was the Son of Man. Who had come in power and great glory. So he's showing that Jesus himself used that phrase, Son of Man, to indicate his deity. And uh, so you could be Son of Man, and it's not just a humble comment. It's I think the especially important part is that Daniel reference, because the Son of Man there is uh, a, a special deity that's allowed to sit with God in uh, heaven. All right, so that's uh, another one, page 335. Let's go to 339. Matthew 10, 23. 
Did Jesus promise to return to earth during the lifetime of his disciples? So what's going on there? Well, Jesus sends the disciples out on a mission, and he told them, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Well, but wait a minute. He didn't go to heaven then, and he didn't come back again before they returned from their evangelistic tour. So that sounds like a problem. Well, they admit that there are many interpretations. Some say that it's actually a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem. But that doesn't seem to work before the Son of Man comes. Others say maybe it's Jesus' statement referring to an outpouring of the Holy Spirit before the return of Christ. But that seems to go way beyond the literal meaning of the text. Others see it as containing a projection uh, from their mission, these uh, disciples, to their continuing mission to proclaim the gospel even to the end of the age. It says, note that the disciples are probably not have gone through all the cities of Israel in that short mission, but it says that it doesn't seem like Jesus is referring to the distant future. So here's another alternative. Take the promise literally and immediately. So it says, before the Son of Man comes, as a reference to the fact that Jesus rejoined the disciples after their mission. It says that makes more sense. So the phrase, before the Son of Man comes, is never used by Matthew to describe the second coming. And it fits with a literal understanding of the first part of that verse because the disciples went literally and immediately into the cities of Israel and Jesus literally and immediately rejoined them when they got back. Also, there's no indication here anywhere else the disciples thought Jesus was going to go to heaven while they are out on their tour. That would have startled them. So I think that makes good sense. All right, I'm going to move to another one here. I'm still in Matthew. Here's Matthew 11:14. Didn't Jesus say John the Baptist was Elijah reincarnated? So there are some people that want to uh, look for reincarnation inside the Bible. Well, what's going on? Jesus, in uh, Matthew 11, he refers here to John the Baptist as Elijah who is to come. But since Elijah died many centuries before, does that mean then that John's a reincarnation of Elijah? Ooh, there it is, reincarnation. But they said, you know, this verse does not teach reincarnation. John and Elijah didn't have the same being. They had the same function. Jesus wasn't saying John was literally Elijah. Just he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Look in Luke 1, 17. That means keeping his prophetic ministry going. Also, Jesus' disciples understood he was speaking about John. Since Elijah was at the Mount of Transfiguration and John had already lived and died by then, and Elijah had the same name and self-consciousness, Elijah had not been reincarnated as John the Baptist. Third, Elijah doesn't really fit a reincarnation model for another big reason. He didn't die. He was taken to heaven like Enoch. Well, traditional reincarnation says you got to die before you get reincarnated into another body. Okay, it says, fourth, if there's any doubt about this passage about reincarnation, all of the scripture opposes that. Hebrews says it's appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So no, that's not talking about reincarnation. Um, here's one, Matthew 12, 40. I've heard this one before. If Jesus was crucified on Friday, how could he have been in the grave three days and nights? Because in Matthew 28, 1, we know that Christ rose on Sunday, but Jesus himself said he'd be in the, the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Well, wait a minute, if Christ is crucified on a Friday, how could it be three days and three nights and rise on Sunday? That's only two days later. Well, here are a couple of possible solutions. One, 
Some scholars believe Jesus was in the grave for three full days and nights. He was crucified on Wednesday. Well, really? Uh, Well, they say that this is the literal meaning of that phrase, three days and three nights. And they point out on the view that Jesus was crucified on a Friday. There's no explanation for what he did on Wednesday. All the other days are accounted for. They argue that the Passover was not a fixed day like Friday, but it floated. Well, here's another solution. I'm not sure I buy that first solution, but the second one is most scholars do think he was crucified on Friday. So they take that phrase three days and three nights to be a Hebrew figure of speech. It refers to any part of three days and nights. Uh, Okay, so it said, for example, in the book of Esther, they use the term three days and three nights. It's not 72 hours. Um, It says this fits the view of chronological events given by Mark as well as the fact that Jesus died on Passover day, that's Friday. So I think that makes way more sense, that three days and three nights means a part of any. So you've got Friday and Saturday and Sunday. They're the three days. Now the nights, no, but if you're doing it as a figure of speech, it's any part of days and nights. All right, so that's I think that's uh, that makes sense to me. Here's Matthew 13, 45. Was Mary a perpetual virgin, or did she have other children after Jesus' virgin birth? Now, this is a big one for Roman Catholics because they teach that Mary was a perpetual virgin. So in Matthew 13, 45, when it refers to Jesus' brothers and sisters, does it really mean cousins? Well, they admit that the words for brother and sister could mean a close relative. So you've got to look at the context. And it says it appears because of the context that they are Jesus' real half-brothers and sisters. First, there's no place in the Bible that affirms that Mary was a perpetual virgin, uh, just like their idea of Mary's sinlessness. Uh, there's no statement anywhere in the Bible that supports either of those teachings. So it says, secondly, when brothers and sisters are used in connection with father or mother, it does not mean cousins. It means actual blood brothers and sisters. Now think about Matthew 13:55. It says this, Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? It said third, there are other references in the Bible to Jesus' brothers. John says even his brothers did not believe in him. That's John 7, 5. Paul speaks of James, the Lord's brother. That's Galatians 1, 19. And Mark says, talks about his, meaning Jesus' brothers and his mother. That's Mark 3, 31. John speaks of his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. That's John 2.12. Acts 1.14, Luke says, Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brothers. They're up in the upper room. So I I think the Catholics are off base there that uh, they were not cousins. These were actual brothers and sisters, half-brothers and sisters for Jesus. Uh, Let me do one more. So many good ones. Oh, I like this one, since we're talking about Catholics anyway. Matthew 16, 18. Is Peter the rock on which the church is built? So Roman Catholics love this passage. They believe that that shows the primacy of Peter. Peter, uh, Paul said the church is built on Christ, though, not Peter. So is Peter the rock in the passage? They said, you know, there are different ways to understand the passage, but none of them support the Roman Catholic view that the church is built on St. Peter infallible in all of his pronouncements and all. Why? Well, first of all, look in Matthew eight fourteen. Peter was married. Popes don't marry. 
So if the first pope was Peter and he was married, why later on did they say no priest or pope could get married? Secondly, Peter was not infallible. No, he wasn't. Even Paul had to rebuke him in Galatians 2.14 for his hypocrisy, says he was not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Third, the Bible declares very clearly that Christ is the foundation of the church. 1 Corinthians 3.11, No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Fourth, uh, another reason why you, you, you're not going to say Peter is the uh, principal person that they're talking about there, founding the church, the only sense in which he had a foundational role, well, the other apostles shared the same way. He wasn't unique. Uh, Paul says the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. That's Ephesians 2.20. Fifth, there's no indication that Peter was the head of the early church. When they had a first council, we see that in Acts 15, when they had that first council in Jerusalem, Peter just was an introductory uh, role player at that point. James actually seemed to have more significance. He summed up the conference. He's the one that made the final pronouncement. Look in Acts 15, verses 13 to 21. Peter is never referred to as the pillar of the church. Paul speaks of plural pillars, James, Cephas, and John. That's Galatians 2, 9. He's not even listed first among the pillars. Uh, Many Protestants, they also, here's another point, they say they believe Jesus' reference to this rock was to Peter's solid rock-like testimony that he gave that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's Matthew 16, 16. But even if the rock references Peter, which is possible, he was just a rock in the apostle, uh, with the apostles founding the church, not the rock, nor is he the only apostolic rock. Even Peter says Christ is the chief rock. He calls him the cornerstone in 1 Peter 2, 7. And Paul notes the other apostles are all part of that foundation. That's Ephesians 2, 20. So I hope this gives you an idea of what this book does. It gives you a lot of uh, food for thought. It lets you work through what the problem is with possible solutions. And when they're not sure, I like it. They tell you there could be other ways to interpret it, and they give you the different interpretations. So I think they're very fair-minded. Again, the title of it is When Critics Ask, Geisler and How. Healthy-sized book, but I think it's a good one to have. Well, thanks, and uh, we'll do another podcast really soon. Bye-bye.